here, let me get my head together. Father, just be with us this morning as we look at your word. We just ask you to guide us and lead us through this amazing gospel. We just pray you give us insight and wisdom. And, and we pray that you, by your spirit, will apply it and work it in our lives to reshape us into the image you intended for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, this morning, we're going to be picking back up on our study in uh, the gospel of Luke. Um, and if you have a Bible or a way of following along, and if you'd like to, why don't you head over to Luke chapter 7, please. Uh, the Gospel of Luke is the story of Jesus and the inbreaking kingdom of God into this world. So Luke, like a documentary maker, has done extensive interviews and, and worked to, to, to provide the best version of this story that he can. So he's been tracing the story of Jesus all the way from his origins, from his birth story, even before his birth. Uh, then through his childhood, more than the other Gospels have actually done, into his early ministry. And we're at a section right now, we're at a point uh, where Jesus is gaining a lot more no- notoriety in his in his ministry. He's getting a lot of attention. And that's not always a good thing in this uh, circumstance here. The religious leaders have begun squaring off against him, making it clear that they're not necessarily on board. Uh, but others, outsiders and the marginalized, have found in him a real ally. Uh, so when we left off last time, Jesus had just delivered what has been, what we've come to know as the Sermon on the Plain. It's parallel to the Sermon on the Mount. But it's a sermon where Jesus was teaching us uh, the radically different way in which his followers would attend to life. Uh, saying perplexing things to us, like you're blessed when you're poor and love your enemies, and give asking nothing in return. Strange things that people weren't expecting to hear. We've called it the divine ethos, a set of principles that are meant to characterize what his followers uh, would live like. Um, Today, as we begin chapter 7, Jesus is going to go from teaching uh, about this way of life to demonstrating what it can look like when we live on earth as it is in heaven. We're going to encounter a, a very unlikely character in the beginning of this. Though given the gospel story so far, he's not that unlikely. But in the context of first century Israel, he's a very unusual character to be brought into the mix here. Jesus is going to do some miracles. And while I believe these miracles actually happened, I believe that this is you know telling us an account of true things. I also believe these were recorded as a means of being able to teach us something, uh, to teach us things about the nature of faith and, and also give us I- important insights into the nature of God's compassion towards humanity. So if you are there in Luke chapter 7, we're going to dive right into it today. Uh, we'll get into this section, we'll examine it, and we'll see what we may discover here. And we'll begin with verse 1. It says, when Jesus had finished saying all this to the people, talking about the Sermon on the Plain, he returned to Capernaum. And there, at that time, the highly valued slave of a Roman officer was sick and near death. When the officer heard about Jesus, he sent some respected Jewish elders to ask him to come and heal his slave. So they earnestly begged Jesus to help the man. If anyone deserves your help, he does, they said, for he loves the Jewish people and even built a synagogue for us. So Jesus went with them. And we'll stop there in the middle of uh, that verse. Uh, We need to stop and think about this, uh, a few things here. First, uh, Luke gives us some details. Again, so far, 
He hasn't been really naming that many places that they've been, but here we, we zero in on Capernaum. This is basically the hub of operations for Jesus in his Galilean ministry. When he ministered up north, he was pretty much in Capernaum. That's where Peter lived. We get the idea that that was where his home base was. Next, we're introduced to a Roman officer as the NLT, the New Living Translation, words it. But literally, in the Greek, it says that he was a centurion, a commander over a 100 soldiers. Now, some scholars believe that this would be the equivalent to a captain in our modern military or somewhere thereabouts like that. Since Roman legions weren't stationed in any, anywhere except in Caesarea and Jerusalem, it's unlikely that this man was born uh, Roman uh, or a, a Roman citizen. He's probably a conscript from Syria. The Syrian troops were predominant uh, Roman occupiers uh, in the north there, in the Galilean region. It also meant that he would have been in the service of Herod Antipas. So he would have been in the service of the ruler of that region, the Roman uh, puppet ruler, as a peacekeeper, basically, kind of think in terms of a police force. We also know that he has a sick and dying slave that he's concerned about. And here's where we have to stop for just a moment. Um, Even though the text mentions the status as slave quite casually, as modern readers, it's important for us to stop for a moment and look at this and kind of unpack it and think about that a little bit. The Bible, we have to remember, was written in a different time and, and, and culture from our own. And even though oftentimes it'll speak of slavery without qualification, we know that the rest of the scripture, and especially the good news, reveal that it was never, ever God's intent for one human to impose ownership over another human being. But this is how the ancients operated. This was the way the ancient world was, really, until the gospel came on the scene and began that gradual change of things. But I just want us to understand, I don't believe that when the scriptures casually mention slavery, that they were ever intended to validate that as a practice. They were simply written within the culture of that time. But what the scriptures actually reveal to us is a world where that sort of villainy would be abandoned altogether. And we would embrace the commonality of God's great human family, where all of us in our diversity and uniqueness have an equal value before God. Um, but that's all. I just want to qualify, uh, you know, when, when the Bible makes these informal references to slavery, that's been a cause of concern for some. I want to qualify. This is not an endorsement. This was never intended as an endorsement. It's written within the culture that it was written. Uh, and that's all. So we gather that this enslaved person was cared for. The centurion actually goes to great lengths to try to get help for him. He's reaching out across ethnic and social borders that were firmly in place at that time. And the dynamic of this is really interesting to me. We've got a Gentile, likely a pagan officer in the hated Roman army under the direction of the hated Herod Antipas. And he's obviously a person of means because he has, you know, he does have household servants. So, so think about this, a rich pagan foreigner working for a national supervillain. If anyone's appearance would fit the description of enemy, this guy would be like the poster child for that. The enemy reaches out to Jesus for help. And that is meant to take us back. That's meant to take us quickly back to the Sermon on the Plain. Because Jesus said something about that, didn't he? He said something about how we treat our enemies. What will Jesus do here? Now, how did this guy know about Jesus? It says he heard about him. So clearly the story's been going around. 
but we're not told the details of it. The soldier is well known in the Jewish community, though. The envoy who comes to speak on his behalf, speak highly of him, mentioning that he's funded the building of their synagogue. There's a synagogue to this day in Capernaum, uh, but it was built much later than that. But underneath that, the foundations, underneath the foundations of it, there's actually an older structure that we believe actually does date back to that time. So the remnants of what this guy did may still be there to this day in Capernaum. Uh, and, but, you know, so that's really interesting to me, too, because that means that this centurion is far more complex than many of us might think. He's a Roman centurion and he's a man who does good for those in his community. He's part of the force occupying and oppressing Israel, and he builds synagogues for the townspeople under his authority. These details remind us that we should never reduce someone to one attribute or judge someone based on one element of who they are. People are far more nuanced than what a social media post could ever reveal about them. And it's clear that the envoy thinks that they need to sell Jesus on the idea of this guy. So they start going on about the merits of what he's done and why we, you know, why he's worthy of this. And we notice that Jesus never asked a single question about that. Jesus never brings that. Jesus doesn't sit back and say, why should I do this? Not at all. He just seems ready to just drop everything and let, yeah, let's go. Let's do this thing. And again, we've got to think about that. Going to a Gentile's house for observant Jewish people was a huge no-no for Israelites. That is true within the the conservative Orthodox community to this day. In a very similar instance in the book of Acts, uh, Peter is summoned to the house of a Roman centurion and God has to actually give Peter a vision to, to help him, you know, to get him to quit wigging out over the idea of doing that. But Jesus never brings that up. You wouldn't even know that was an issue based on Jesus's response. He just says, yeah, hey, let's go. Let's go heal this kid. But let's keep reading. We pick back up there in verse 6. But just before they arrived at the house, the officer sent some friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself by coming to my home, for I'm not worthy of such an honor. I'm not even worthy to come to meet you. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. I know this because I'm under the authority of my superior officers, and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say, go, and they go, or come, and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to the crowd that was following him, he said, I'll tell you, I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. And when the officer's friends returned to his house, they found the slave completely healed. Okay, so in a full reversal of the societal norms, this rich, powerful, influential government representative says he's not worthy to host a Jewish peasant in his home. And, you know, I think that this is another indicator of the man's state of mind because he seems to be aware, for one thing, of how sensitive this was for a Jewish rabbi to come into a Gentile's house. So he provides an excuse for him not to come. But also, based on the words that he uses, curios, It's indicating there that he sees something in Jesus. He's recognized something about Jesus is connected to the divine, and he feels inferior to that. He feels a sense of awe before that. Luke emphasizes this here because it's meant to tell us something. And since faith seems to be the issue that this story kind of orbits around, I think we learn from this detail that faith is going to spring from the soil of humility. 
One of the prominent doctrines of the crazy church that I was part of, and if you don't know what I'm talking about when I say that, in my formative Christian years, I was part of a uh, very legalistic, uh, very oppressive church. Did a lot of damage to our family. But, you know, Eastgate is one of the byproducts of that, so it wasn't all wasted. But, but one of the main doctrines of that church was centered on, on faith. It was sort of a word of faith church, if you're familiar with that at all. It's a sect of the charismatic church that taught if one has the right amount of the right kind of faith, then anything that we name or claim is going to happen. Anything that we demand by faith, is it, God is obligated to do. And as I look back on my time spent in that environment I'm mostly, well, I'm, I'm a lot of things, but I'm mostly embarrassed and ashamed of the, the rank arrogance that we displayed in, in the midst of that. I spent, and I'm just talking for myself here, but I spent an awful lot of time telling Jesus what to do and where to go and who to heal and how to provide and all of these different things, giving instructions to him, giving orders to him. The one thing that I don't ever remember, and maybe it happened, but I certainly didn't come up enough for me to ever retain it. I never heard humility in connection with faith. I never really put those kinds of things together. But humility, the acknowledgement that I don't call the shots, that, that God isn't lucky to have me on his side, or that my wants aren't the most important thing on heaven's agenda, that kind of humility was never, ever talked about. I believe this detail of the centurion's humble expression and willingness to put Jesus' interests first is a major key to expressing the kind of faith that God is calling us to, the kind of faith that clearly got Jesus stoked. And I used to see the exercise of faith as something where I demanded something from God and then obstinately repeated that demand until God finally relents and gives in. I'm not giving up, God, I got faith. Uh, you know, uh, and I didn't word it like that. I never would say that in those, but that was the general overall attitude that was present, not only in myself, but in everyone who was embracing that concept. I have now come to see faith in a very different light. I see faith as a willingness to trust even though things don't go my way. I see faith as a willingness to put Jesus' agenda first. And if the results are a favorable intervention on my behalf, then wonderful. Thank you, Lord, for it. But if it doesn't happen that way, I still believe in the goodness of God. That, I believe, is the faith that God calls us to. That sort of humble faith, I believe, is what the centurion is representing here. But, you know, he does go on to explain why Jesus wouldn't need to come and heal his servant. Uh, and, and he uses his own military background as a basis for that understanding of Jesus's power to provide this miraculous healing. So as a middle, middle-ranking officer, he was used to giving and taking orders, which makes him in a unique position there. He knew that if he told some legionnaire to go dig a trench somewhere, he didn't have to go and be there and supervise and watch him. He knew that his authority compelled the legionnaire to go and accomplish what it was that he wanted accomplished. Uh, on the converse side, if a higher-ranking officer told him to move his cohort to a specific region, he knew that higher-ranking officer didn't have to be there when he did that. He just knew that that authority was enough to compel that to be, to be accomplished. And, and here I believe we get another glimpse then 
into the kind of faith that we're called to based on this guy's perception of it and Jesus' validation of that. Faith is fundamentally a trust in Christ's authority. It's not so much dictating to what it is that, you know, what it is that we want to see happening in the world, but it's a trust and a belief in Christ's authority. And this is intense because many of those who practiced healing at that time, and there were people who would go about doing healings, either magicians or, uh, uh, or even in the rabbinical traditions, there was always, always a hands-on incantation form to it in some level or another. There was always you know, some charm to be applied, some prayer to be prayed specifically over the person. Always a level of theater involved in it to some degree. But this centurion cuts through all of that and confesses that he believed, believed that Jesus could do this without any other external uh, machinations. Just say the word like a commander over the forces would say something and it'll be accomplished. Now, how he came to this conclusion about Jesus, that's a mystery to us. We have no idea. It was shocking to Jesus as well. He didn't seem to anticipate that. He seems somewhat stunned. What this pagan officer seemed to grasp was actually at the very center of the Jewish faith, that the one true creator God is the cosmic sovereign. He's Lord over heaven and earth. He is the highest authority. There is no other besides him. And what's even more amazing is that in this highly unlikely, even shocking, unexpected form, this guy seems to recognize that this creator, sovereign God is operating through Jesus. That's incredible. What many Israelites, including the spiritual leaders of Jesus's day, failed to grasp, this outsider had embraced fully uh, in such a short amount of time. He hears about Jesus, he asks for some help, and he says, here's why I'm believing this. Faith is an expression of submission then to Christ's authority. I think for those of us who weren't in the military, I'm someone who, I I was never in the military, uh, uh, who didn't have this sort of clear authority structure. This, I think, sometimes gets a little bit difficult for us. We have people in our lives. I got people in my life, life that you know I respect and whose decisions I would acquiesce to pretty easily. But we always seem to maintain our own sense of autonomy in that, without that, you know, without that military structure providing us a sense uh, of this clear-cut chain of command. And because God exercises His sovereign power over all of creation in such a loving, gentle way we might be tempted to see God as just another voice in the mix that we possibly will listen to, but maybe not. Depends on what I want out of this whole thing. But based on this story, it would be a mistake to imagine Jesus as anything less than someone with total authority over all creation and especially over our own lives. In fact, anything less could be described as a lack of faith, an unwillingness to, to, to submit to and recognize the, the total sovereign authority of Jesus Christ, beginning with my life and then recognizing that it's exercised over all of creation. So in this story, Jesus heals this guy's servant. Sometimes, though, we ask for things and the answer is no. But if our faith is fixed on the authority of Christ and our faith rests on his 
decision, then real faith is going to be okay with a no because it's in submission to what it is that Christ has done. But Rob, that's disconcerting. I mean, there's a lot of things that I want and I need and it makes me feel like maybe God doesn't care or that he's callous to the pain that I'm experiencing. Well, then that's why we need to keep reading because the next story reminds us about who it is that we're submitting to. We'll keep going. Verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went with his disciples to the village of Nain and a large crowd followed him. A funeral procession was coming out as he approached the village gate. The young man who had died was a widow's only son, and a large crowd from the village was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. Don't cry, he said. And then he walked over to the coffin and touched it. And the bearer stopped. Young man, he said, I'll tell you, get up. Then the dead boy sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Great fear swept the crowd and they praised God saying, a mighty prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people today. And the news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding countryside. Now, in some ways, this story might feel disconnected from what we just read. But in reality, it's a very important bookend to to what's going on here. So here we go to the other end of the social spectrum. Instead of a wealthy man uh, in control in society, we have a widow who's lost her only son. And in that time, in that culture, that was as good as a death sentence for her because children were your only inheritance at that point. You were a woman in a patriarchal society, cut off on her own, faced a great deal of danger. So Luke places this in the town of Nain, which is lost to us in history, but some scholars believe that it's close to uh, a small village near Nazareth. What's interesting here is that unlike the previous story, nobody summoned Jesus. He just happens on the scene. It's kind of an interesting thing. Jesus and a large crowd of his followers are heading into the village and coming out of the village is a large crowd of a funeral procession and they collide at this moment. doesn't seem to be planned other than within the confines of God's sovereign uh, sovereign will. But but in the story, nothing is mentioned about that. Jesus just happens on the scene. And this miracle occurs when nobody expresses faith in Jesus or even asks him to do anything. It's one more indicator that God doesn't operate out of formula. We see all sorts of variations in the gospel. God, God is a God of the unexpected. The key to this miracle, as I read it, appears to be there in verse 13. It says, when Jesus saw her in the New Living Translation, it says his heart overflowed with compassion. And that's a good, that conveys pretty well what we see in the Greek there. But you could also have translated this, that Jesus felt like he had been punched in the gut when he saw this, because that's literally what's being said in this. In fact, the NLT doesn't include it, but in the Greek, the feminine pronoun her is used three times in verse 13. He saw her was moved with compassion for her and said to her, woman, don't cry. Uh, it's, it's almost as if Luke is saying, in case you missed it, this is about her, uh, what's happening here. Not her faith, not her pious trust in God. No, her plight is what punched Jesus in the gut. I think this miracle is recorded here 
to help us keep a balance, to keep in mind that God's compassion for humanity does not depend on our faith. Yay is right. (laughs) Thank you. I was hoping I'd get something like that. That's kind of one of those, whew. (laughs) Because as I've said many times before, none of us is very good at this. Jesus tells her not to cry, which could sound cruel or ridiculous, but it's meant to take us back to the Sermon on the Plain. Didn't he say something? Jesus said something about, blessed are those who weep right now, because they will be filled with joy. She had a reason to cry at that moment, but he knew what was coming. And that's what he meant in the sermon. Something better is coming. You may, you may feel like circumstances are bad and pressing in on you right now. You may be weeping right now, but something better is coming. In fact, Jesus reached out and he touches the coffin, it says, the beer. The, it was basically boards that they were carrying the corpse on. Uh, and to do so, for Jesus to do so, would have made him ceremonially unclean at that moment. But only if the young man remained dead. Jesus operated in the present as though the world was already healed. Jesus moved and expressed God's compassion in light of what was coming. This miracle just reveals so much about God's heart and the extent of Christ's authority. We may often feel concern for someone else's pain or suffering, but what does that inspire in us? What do we do with that? I remember it was, what, 12 or so years ago, the first time I came out to South Sudan, and uh, I remember an incident that happened there one time on the compound. Uh, I, I heard the sound of a lady just wailing, just crying, and, you know, it's a small area, so I mean, it, you just kind of had to follow the noise and find out what was going on. And when I got there, uh, the doctors who were present at the time had told me that uh, a young man had suffered severe head trauma. He'd been thrown uh, uh, from a vehicle, from a moving vehicle. And, uh, and I can still remember how, you know, the doctors finally, you know, kind of left the room there and the woman was crying and a group of other young men came in an old beat up pickup truck and And they picked up this body and this woman was crying and they put it in the back of the truck and they were going away and just the terrible sense of sorrow. It was just almost unbearable. And there was nothing that any of us could do in that moment. And I thought about this very story while that was all unfolding and just wondering what what we could do, what what could make a difference here. And all I could think of was just to pray. And, And, you know... I didn't know the language of the people there, but I tried to make as much eye contact as I could with the people who were around, and I just kept praying and asking God to bring his comfort. And I think sometimes one of the most effective ministries that we can do is just in a small act of compassion, not always in trying to attempt to solve the pain. Jesus did more here than we're able to do, but the way in which he acted is very important for us. The touch on the coffin showed a willingness to identify with the situation and not back away from it. A willingness to step into it to bring comfort. Jesus had compassion on the woman and he met her where she was, whether she believed in him or not. It's interesting that in both of these stories, we have no idea if the centurion ended up following Jesus. We have no idea what this woman does afterwards. That doesn't seem to be the point. The point is, 
the compassion of God that moves in our midst, sometimes without us even realizing or without our ability to believe. Maybe the best that we can do is offer a compassionate shoulder or a listening ear, but I would believe this kind of touch often reaches below the skin and meets the pain of a hurting heart. And that is where God does his most amazing miracles after all. The end result was was resurrection and restoration. But those two are are a picture because this is some of the things that we're anticipating. This is what Jesus, those who followed Jesus for all of these years, for 2,000 years now, have been believing for at the end of the age. This miracle was acting out the picture of our hope, uh, just a reminder to us that this is not an impossible dream. And it's not dependent on how well we pull anything off. It's not dependent on how well we're able to trust Jesus for him to return and make all things new. It's all resting on the compassion and the love that God has for the human race. And that actually gives me a great deal of comfort. Because I'm someone who kind of bumbles through life. I I have dreams of having great faith. I really do. But it doesn't always seem to happen that way. And just to know that Creator God looks on me and looks on you with that kind of compassion so that when I hurt and when things are closing in on me, it's not an aloof, unconcerned God that I'm dealing with, but one who feels punched in the gut right there with me knowing my pain, but also knowing what's coming, that even though weeping may endure for the night, there's joy coming in the morning when he returns. So let's find our hope in that. Let's allow it to develop into a confidence in Christ's authority who's going to set all things right, beginning with our our own hearts. Right on? All right, very cool. Why don't you stand with me, if you will, please.